1: All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch.
0: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions
1: apply if rated PG.
0: Busy Being Black listeners now have an exclusive discount at my favorite publishing house, Pluto Press, an independent publisher of Radical left-wing nonfiction books. Established in 1969, Pluto is one of the oldest radical publishing houses in the UK, but its focus remains, making timely interventions in contemporary struggles. You'll find a curated list of my favorite books and your exclusive discount code in the show notes. Thanks to funding from the European Cultural Foundation, I'm embarking on a series of conversations exploring queer black solidarity across Europe during the COVID-19 crisis. As COVID-19 continues to disproportionately impact black people and communities of color across the globe, these conversations will focus on how marginalized, othered, and vulnerable communities are coming together in solidarity to share their stories, cultures, and acts of protest and resistance. Thank you to the European Cultural Foundation for investing in our stories. My conversation today is with author, legal scholar, and activist Olava Dewanjeh. Working across anti-racism, LGBTQ rights, anti-capitalism, and disability movements, Olava brings to the conversation a wonderfully expansive understanding of blackness, queerness, and trans identities. Olava calls us to an understanding of blackness that is capacious, that contains within it the possibilities of everything we are and can be. And she offers that so many of the ideas we've internalized about our blackness are inherently anti-black. Olava discusses how her trans body is read by white and black people alike as an indication of some promised future, how she's using her artistic practice to explore intracommunal conversations about intimacy and race, and why solidarity isn't solidarity if you're not willing to give something up. Olava suggests that when we die, we'll care more about whether we showed up for people than the things we surrounded ourselves with. Our conversation begins with Olava explaining why we should be more disloyal to colonial names. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Olava Dewanjeh.
1: See, you have to understand with my first name it's a it's a scandinavian name for some strange reason my parents uh like many other european like african burunian parents anyways at least burunian parents many of them chose to give me a european name um they thought it meant it was some kind of b- biblical uh biblical name um turns out it isn't turns out it's actually <laughs> Scandinavian means something like daughter of ancestors, um, which I cherish. I cherish the meaning. I cherish the name. But given the fact that it's a colonial name, I don't really care really how it's pronounced. I mean, I do have a pet peeve, like Americans who say Olave, I mean, I'll fight you. Yeah. But <laughs> because Olav just sounds really ugly but yeah. for the rest because I don't think I even pronounce it right I don't think that the Scandinavians like I don't think Swedes would be like yeah that's how you pronounce Olav huh? um, so <laughs> anything up anything but Olav uh, I can work with
0: okay
1: I feel I think that we need to be a lot more I think we need to be a lot more disloyal to colonial legacies, such as languages you know like I I don't care if what I write uh, is has tons of spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes. If it's in English, French, Dutch, whatever, I don't care. Just we need to be a little bit like you know, it's colonial violence. Why do we need to be so loyal to it?
0: It's actually really interesting. I had a conversation um, the other day with um, a trans person in Spain who's currently seeking international protection, and. I, I, I think I was overthinking this conversation. I felt like I needed to ensure that there was some sort of translation between what she was saying and, and what the audience would want to hear. And in that, I kind of ended up like causing harm, mm-hmm. right? Because they wanted to be they wanted to speak in their own voice. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, let's make this make sense for the audience. And actually what I missed in that was that this is how conversations happen, right? That I might have met this person, at a bar or at a march, and we would have forged a conversation and a connection, mm-hmm. no matter what that language barrier was. So we're doing it yeah. again. We're doing it again, yeah. just the two of
1: us. I think, I think one of the things that uh, I'm always sort of intrigued by, like I once read something about um, being in, in, in multi-language spaces and not, well, sort of resisting the need to understand everything that's being said, right? Resisting the need to have things being translated for you. I think this particularly made me think of how much this was, this was kind of like a critique on how, you know, predominantly white, Dutch, white, Flemish, white, French people tend to have like, like really find hearing another language they don't speak in their, in their countries find that violent. You know, they get very anxious if they hear someone speak Arabic, they get super anxious if they hear somebody speak, you know, Lingala, because it's like you know, I they feel like they have a, a right to understand and to know what people are saying, and so I started practicing. I started practicing being in spaces where uh, you know people are speaking languages that I don't understand, and not asking for translations, and not demanding to understand, right? To just sort of, and that has been really interesting. And I found that I become way more, uh, way more. Uh, my roommate is coming in. Let me just go on. Okay. It's okay. The Zoom video. Okay. Are you sure? Come on, show it. Show it. Uh, uh, hi. This is now gonna be part of the recording.
0: Yes. Fine. Life happens. Life
1: happens. It's also 34 degrees, people. But anyways. Uh, so I, I found myself really kind of uh, noticing that I, I also people who don't speak perfect English or perfect French, but who do speak like three or, or four other African or even European languages to just be like, that's what it is. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, we just are in spaces and we don't necessarily have a right or a claim to understanding uh, what people are saying, especially so what is, among them.
0: And so what has been that impact then of you being in these spaces and not necessarily understanding what's happening around you? I imagine it's quite disorienting.
1: I think at first it was really disoriented, like disorienting. But then I started, I started noticing and paying much more clo- closer attention to the ways in which uh, these communities are interacting with one another, right? Um, and accepting that I'm an outsider, that I'm there to witness, to hold space, to 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 sort of smile and nod, and you know, sort of be. I don't know, like be, be at peace and for them to know that that's okay. Cause you, you will always have someone go like, Oh, let me translate this. And I'm like, that's okay. It's not necessary. It's fine. You know, it's okay. You don't need to do that work. You don't need to do that labor for me. It's generous. Thank you. But if you want to focus on what you're doing right now and what you're discussing, that's fine. I'll just sit here. And, and I found that that's really been, it's been a way to like hold space and witness other people, other communities engaging and, and I have a very creative, I have a very, like, big imagination. So I will, you will project all kinds of things. You're like, oh, this must be a joke. Ha-ha. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Or, uh, and just sort of, and, and or sort of denote and be able to, to notice when there are certain tensions and how people sort of navigate that when things become tense and who gets taken care of. It's allowed me to just witness uh, and just become more... Uh, literate in terms of the ways in which communities engage. And uh, and I'm thankful for it. Also, I think for myself, it's also really freed up in my writing, freed up uh, the need to make sure that white audiences, you know, like when I'm writing to explain everything to them, but to just be like, I claim, you know, <laughs> I guess I think it just connects a little bit to uh, Edouard Glisson's right to opacity. I, will, I am okay with you not fully understanding everything that I have to say about the black experience. I'm okay with that now, with white people who read me having to look things up and perhaps not even ever really finding out what I meant. I'm okay with that now. And that's been liberating as well.
0: Well, that's fascinating. Obviously in the vein of Toni Morrison and many other black authors who have centered the black voice and the black experience, and in doing so, it, it changes the entire position of something that you're reading, you know, as a black person, when you're being spoken to directly, when your experience yeah. is being, the primacy of your experience yeah. um, c- comes through.
1: I think I think uh, if I, I'm speaking for a Burundian context, where growing up, you are just sort of bombarded with so many of the different languages, like in the region, Swahili, Lingala, um, but also European languages and, and so on. And I think we're, we're taught to be at rest and at ease with not necessarily understanding everything that's happening, but also trusting that you're safe, mm-hmm. right? Right in these spaces. And, and that's been something which I think that uh, this sort of multicultural... Ambition and 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 ideation and sort of the fantasies and myths around it from a white perspective has have constantly meant yes we will be tolerant and accepting if we understand you if we grasp you if you speak our language if we, you are you know legible to us as human or as uh, as as valid and um and I think we need to just sort of you know like I don't know I I, I like I like to think of it as going back to those roots of growing up in spaces where people spoke many different languages, not necessarily always knowing what is being said, mm-hmm. asking questions in a way that, you know, especially when you're long, younger, asking about clarifications in a way that is respectful and not disruptive. You know, um, it's just been a great exercise for me. I don't know. So just to say I'm not loyal to this European Scandinavian name. If it's a little bit differently pronounced than I've been pronouncing it, I'm not pronouncing it right either and I don't care. <laughs>
0: Okay then, Olava, <laughs> let's, I normally start all of my conversations with, um, not normally, I've begun to start my conversations with a question I really come to love, how's your heart?
1: Uh, my heart, you're one of those people who ask those kind of questions, <laughs> poignant ones, the ones where your heart goes like, yeah, but how about it, okay? <laughs> let's talk on it. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, how's my heart? It, I'm trying to hold it. I'm trying to um, be extra attentive and extra kind to it and, uh, and protect it also a little bit. It's been a very, very, this 2020, you know, uh, it's been, uh, it's been, um, it's been, let's say, taxing for my heart. My heart has worked over hours. And I've decided in the last few months to try to find ways and to really focus on ways to being uh, kind and very careful and protective of my heart. So I've tried to infuse a lot more pleasure, a lot more joy, a lot more uh, kindness uh, into the way I sort of treat my body and my heart and my mind, because they're all connected, right? And uh, so I think right now, my heart is a bit, I, I guess it's a little bit grateful for that uh, spec- that kind of care at the moment. Um, yeah. That's yeah.
0: beautiful. Uh, see, it's such a good question to start with, isn't it? It is. <laughs> like really brings you, you into You call, call it a
1: good question. i oh my God, it's so deep. I'm not that deep. I'm just not that deep, okay? <laughs>
0: Um, let, let's go back. I read somewhere at the, that at the age of nine, you moved to the, to the Netherlands from Burundi. Mm-hmm. Um, and that from the ages of 16 to 30, you moved 11 times from country to country. Can you talk a little bit more about?
1: Why did you, how do you get all these facts? Look at you doing some research. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, we were, I was nine years old when we fled the Netherlands, with Burundi and we came to the Netherlands. Um, yeah, with my whole family. Uh, I got to say that we never, when we came here, uh, it was very clear in the family. My parents were very adamant, very clear that we were only here as long as there was war in Burundi. It was this constant, like, we will go back. We're not from here and we will not become of here, right? We will, uh, this is a temporary thing. We will go back to our lives. We'll go back to our family. And I guess that's something which, um, that was something that was so important for me or maybe, po- or just became sort of a central, like I I designed my life, what I was going to study and what I was going to, the kind of, you know, skills I developed always with the thought, can I bring this back to Burundi? Can I, will this be things that will be, you know, and I guess, you know, by the time I was like 15, 16, um, you know, like <laughs> So the few, the times I've left the Netherlands were all these times that I was like, okay, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back, right? (laughs) And so 11 times going from country to country was 11, like half of those were leaving the Netherlands and the other half was coming back to the Netherlands. (laughs) Uh, Because of, I think this sense of like, I cannot grow old here, this is not where I belong. And, And first it was with the family, we went to America to live there for about two years. That was I think an attempt for my parents to find spaces that were a lot less segregated, um, a lot less uh, racially illiterate. And I think that they thought that the United States would be uh, a much more safer place for their black children. You know, contentious, contentious. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Um, and after that that was still with my parents after that i basically kept leaving to go i went to live in burundi at least two times and stayed there for two years three years in total thinking i'm never gonna go back and i ended up going back i went and lived in china i went and lived uh, to study there for like a year and a half i went i just kept leaving thinking um somehow being driven to 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 sort of fulfill that promise, I think, that we were not here to stay.
0: And then, so what kept pulling you back?
1: Circumstances, queerness, um, you know, uh, uh, the social security system here, uh, mental health, access to care. Like the last time, when my 30s, when I kind of stopped that spell of like moving every two years, um, was when I actually came back here and I, was, uh, and I, I, I basically underwent uh, uh, psychiatric uh, hospitalization for a while and, uh, you know, really had about two and a half years of intense uh, psychotherapeutic uh, uh, care, uh, dealing with addiction and whatnot. Um, so that as well, those aspects, those things you can find here that you can't find sometimes elders, um, the, in Burundi, for example, and Rwanda, where I also tried to live, the ways in which the evangelical and and, and Protestant um, uh, uh, movement, the more recent, more modern evangelical and Protestant movement has made it so incredibly unsafe for queer people to live in Burundi. It's become, even ended up in the law books, became illegal in the tens. you know, it's not even like in the 1960s or 1970s, no, in the 10s, it became illegal to be queer and whatnot. And that kind of persecution really mandated and pushed for by European and American churches and and political Christian political movements. Um, Yeah, makes people not able to stay. And I had a passport, a Dutch passport, so I could go back when it became really intense when uh, my neighbors were like threatening to call the cops and uh, and on me and my parties where i would invite queer people to come and hang out and eat and just get to know each other and just feel safe and neighbors were calling telling me like we're going to call the cops and say that you're having an orgy which is wasn't legal right so that's a real threat to our lives you know and um I guess um, also to a large extent, uh, I think that I came into, I kept leaving Europe without having really thought about the different ways in which I had internalized European ideals, uh like neo-colonial ideals. So I would go back and do all kinds of projects, which I look back upon and realize now that they were entirely invested in the perpetuation of neocolonial violence right um like very much like oh i'm gonna like help entrepreneurs get access to uh, uh you know uh, like venture capitalist funds and whatnot i'm gonna go there and like consult on the newest technologies on sustainability all that kind of like ethos of progress and modernization and bigger, better business, because that's what Africa needs type of thing. So.
0: You know, that's so funny. Someone I've read somewhere, um, I think it was in um, Afro Atlantic flight and I forget the author's name. I can't see her book in front of me, but she was talking about the African-American hegemony and that the Mm -hmm. kind of exporting of black American culture ideas, which are inherently linked to, you know, the Imperial um, colonial project um means that um black americans go into africa with these great intentions but actually end up reproducing some of the very imperialist and colonialist um Mm -hmm. harms and violences that um that white people perpetrated in the first place in the name of expansion and progress and greed so i've not heard um a black person within europe talk about that same thing yeah,
1: I mean, we're guilty as charged, uh, like, do mm-hmm. not, do not, <laughs> do not underestimate the growing political and economic power of Afro diaspora, African diaspora, like more recent African diaspora, uh, on the political and economic landscape back home. If you look at Somalia, for example, the communities, the expat communities living and working, doing business in Europe, in America mostly, have an incredibly big and important sort of um, impact on how business is is sort of being done now in Somalia. And it isn't necessarily for the better. It isn't necessarily like going back to, it is highly invested with neoliberal sort of conservative, you know, business first sort of ideals and and practices. Um, The same goes for countries like Rwanda, um, the same goes for countries like Ethiopia and uh, less so in Burundi at the moment. But, you know, like it definitely is something which uh, plays a really incredible. I mean, we saw it in the in the in the in the, you know, colonial times and the, just a little bit in after the 60s. So many of these sort of the elite, the African elite were all trained in the West, right so in Uganda, Kenya, and uh, even Burundi, they had all studied at the universities here in Europe, so they came with certain ideas about citizenship, about the Republic, about business, about political organization that uh, were invested and sort of in, like sort of informed by you know European uh, uh, imperialist um, uh, modes of ordering time, space, peoples, and, and so on. So, um, yeah, let's not underestimate that. It continues to be a very important, I mean, you also have to understand that, uh, on the one hand, that definitely plays a role, but on the other hand, you also have, uh, in terms of remittances, remittances is the, is the kind of, the money that people in the African diaspora send back home from their work here, sent back home to pay for school fees, pay for medical bills, pay for rent, pay for, you know, what have you not, weddings and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's estimated and valued at about, I think almost three times as much as the official, uh, like sort of government aid to, uh, the government to government and uh, a supranational organization aid to Africa, right? So wow. um, yeah, so it's what people send back is way, way, way more Uh, than what uh, the West gives in terms of aid or uh, uh, back. And you have to understand these people are sending way more back on the basis of like being paid less than everyone else, you know, Uh, oftentimes being paid, uh, you know, below minimum wage, working under terrible working conditions, also paying the price of being poor. Being poor is expensive. Like in general... The poorer you are, the more you're paying for rent. You know, the more you're paying for, you know, medical and social services in general. It is expensive to be poor, and yet these people manage to send back way more mm. than any government did. So they have, on the one hand, a very like a crucial uh, uh, and important part to play. But on the other hand, we cannot forget that we have, you know, the, the neo the, the the white supremacist neoliberal global order is totalitarian.
0: And how do you handle this tension? You know, you've, you've been traveling around China, Burundi, um, the United States, and you realize what's happening as part of this, right? Particularly in Burundi, that you're kind of um, an extension of the hand of the European state, as it were. Mm. What is it like to then come back to a place um, like the Netherlands? And, and how are you then navigating your place within it?
1: I don't handle much at all. Let me be honest. I love how you're like, how do you handle? <laughs> Honey, I'm not handling shit at all. <laughs> um, I have to say that when I was, when I was in Burundi uh, and in China, these ideas and these sort of, this sort of awareness of these constellations and my role in that and so on were at the very best uh, immature, if existent at all. Um, I think now being here in the last five years, the work that I've been doing, sort of unlearning and sort of also, you know, um, taking consciousness of how, of how I participate and how I do not participate and how I cannot not participate and whatnot, it's really very much a work in progress right now. Like I feel like I'm only, like right now I'm learning, I'm, I'm reading uh, uh, a book called Potential History Unlearning Imperialism. And I find myself, it's just in the first chapters, and I find myself going like, yeah, these are the answers I need because I know now I'm complicit and involved in a, in a way that, you know, is um, that, I can, that we can also, also not just say like, oh, but you can, just, uh, uh, you can just stop. You know, like it's not that simple. Um, for example, I'm vegan, and, uh, and I do so for... Climate change reasons, but also as a critique and as sort of a resistance to uh, 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 to uh, uh, capitalist extraction of, of resources and 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 exploitation of bodies, right? Any type of bodies. And uh, and but I have to say, like at the same time, I'm vegan. Great, I'm not buying. Uh, I'm not buying animal-based products. But often the products that I'm buying are. You know, packaged in plastics. Plastics comes from crude oil. Crude oil is uh, extracted in countries like Nigeria, where the flora and fauna and the peoples and communities have been completely decimated, where Shell has played a you know, and found guilty to have played an important role in the destabilization of these areas, the social and political fabric, the religious and, and the spiritual fabric of those, the Niger Delta, for example, completely destroyed, you know, paid people for activists to be murdered and stuff like that. And that's where my cruelty-free plant-based products are packaged in, right? So mm. there's an impossibility as well. So I'm really very much looking for answers. Um, I think that... Uh, um yeah i think for now to be very honest i'm i i'm just aware that i have to learn i have to learn figure out how it's how it's all connected and how sort of on a personal level i'm involved and how we're all involved and i don't feel like i i have answers yet on how to resist i really don't
0: Mm. i don't think anyone does I mean, if you, if we had the answers, we would all overthrow the state. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there isn't really a, I think there's, what we're seeing now, particularly this year, there's like an incredible amount of learning happening at an incredible rate. And and I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm hopeful, but I'm certainly aware that so much learning is happening. I mean, among mm-hmm. our communities, of course, mm-hmm. but certainly people who had never previously thought about much in the way mm-hmm. of their, their consumption. And speaking of consumption, the Van ab Museum says that your work challenges the binaries we continually reconstruct between self and other, between our own cannibal and civilized selves. I just thought that was so interesting because I'm reading a book now called <laughs> The Delectable. You keep Negro. with
1: this research. Van <laughs> Abbe Museum, that was like three years ago.
0: Yeah, but I thought it was interesting because I was at, at, when I found that I was like aha, because I'm reading the Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro, which mm. talks about um, homoeroticism and cannibalism um, during slavery, mm. um, which is obviously linked to our present day consumption of black bodies. Um, no. And so I'm wondering how you're pushing back. Your uh, first question is how have you come to understand or begin to unpack this tussling between self and other? cannibal and civilized is it this constant learning process and looking for answers or is there something spiritual about this process as well
1: mm, wow um, uh, um it's tricky because i think for me definitely there are certain yeah i think it's definitely spiritual because where i started was uh in this sort of investigation and challenging i really started in 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 this sort of Growing up in this context where people are telling me that being black meant you couldn't be queer, right? Um, That being black meant that you couldn't be this, that or who, you know, and whatever. And then growing up in context, in European context, where being queer meant you were civilized, you were better, right? You were more advanced, you were freer you're more authentic, right? And especially when I came out as trans, you know, about five, six years ago, I'm constantly told like, you're some, especially from a white European lens, I'm this sort of like, uh, you know, this, this promise of hyper modernity and progressivity, this sort of like, you have, you have, you know, you have self-realized or something, you know? And, uh, and I see a lot of people who are also Black and who are also queer, who are kind of also kind of telling me like, oh my God, you're so brave. It's so amazing what you're doing. It's so, like, I wish I had the courage. And people in our communities don't understand you yet. Yeah. There's this constant kind of like, like I, I in a weird way, I, I've sort of, I'm sort of seen as this, uh, as this, uh, the promise of the 21st century, of the progressive 21st century. But I find that very difficult because at the same time, the construct of the black mythology of the black body as being um, lesser, as being cannibal, as being barbaric, one of the pillars of that was the sexual um, and the gender sort of fluidity and, and, and you know, uh, and, and, and freedoms that they, that, you know, European white settlers, colonial settlers, like, witnessed coming into Africa, coming into North Africa, coming into, you know, the East, uh, coming into the West and, you know, in, in the Turtle Islands in, in, uh, in North America and realizing, oh, these people are just, they're just fucking and they, they don't really follow gender binaries and and therefore they're like children. They don't know how to discipline their bodies. They don't know how to, you know, and aside from it being a religious crime or sin, like when we look at India where you have like this, heavy persecution of hijras where you have this, you know, in in the commonwealth, throughout the commonwealth, these sodomy laws. So it wasn't just from a religious uh, uh, perspective, but it was also from a white supremacist ideological sort of construct of like, we in Europe, our women know their place, our men know their place, and sex is regulated, you know, and so what made us barbarians and cannibals and uncivilized is now what people like me are kind of held up to mean, like, oh, I have, I have sort of surpassed or transcended the black experience. And it's very difficult to see so many black people believe that as well, right? To see so many, uh, whether it's the hotepery going on or whether it is the, um, uh, the very conservative Burundian uh, family members who tell me, like, that's not African what you're doing, you know? <laughs> um, or, uh, 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 yeah, I... I and I look at that and I'm like, I think we really, really need uh, to really, at a, at a deeper level, question these ontological categories, right? Mm. And I look at blackness and I wonder, with, and I feel like I've gone through a certain set sort of processes. One of the first ones that I had to do was to come to love it, right? To love blackness. And that meant for me to embrace blackness as something not 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 as a condition of, of you know sort of a negatively affected condition as something that I had to transcend in my work in my you know in my in my life, but as something that uh, that is beautiful that i'm proud of that i that i that I embrace and that meant for me also loving black people in all of their manifestations right to really go like you know. You may not, uh, you may not, you may do sex work. You may not uh, have mentally uh, be conforming to neuro sort of, sort of typical um, uh, projections and whatnot. You may not, you may even do crime, you know, but you are, I love you. You know, uh, you are worthy of love. You're worthy of respect. You're worthy of existence. You're worthy of dignity. And I think that was the first. And, but then the second step for me, was also wanting there to be in the category of Blackness, wanting it to be so wide, so spacious, so free, that things like uh, Blackness is this, you know? You have to, if you're Black, you must be like that. And those things, I can only see them now as kind of a, of a violence. And when I, and I think what is striking to me is I think that a lot of these ideas of, you know, that we enforce the rules that we enforce on what blackness means, who we have sex with, how we have sex, when we have sex, uh, you know, uh, how we speak, um, what we eat, uh, how we dress a lot of those ideas are informed by, I think relatively overt, uh, anti-black, uh, notions, right. Mm, mm. And, and I, I just want us to 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 want it to want it to be so spacious that it's almost meaningless, what it is to be black, you know <laughs> that it's almost um, ontologically speaking, right, And yeah. uh, especially within our communities. like i I kind of come to a point where I think that uh anti-blackness can be something we we'll perpetuate as long as we sort of continue to norm to create norms for what blackness means and how people should or should not behave in our communities like yeah does that make sense at
0: all it makes total sense it's rooted in love uh, reverend angel kyoto and i'm paraphrasing um describes love as spaciousness mm. right she says love is um creating enough space within ourselves to allow everyone else to show up as they are yeah and that doesn't mean that you don't want things change you're not pushing for for justice or for things to be better yeah. but that you're loving people in the face of what is right yeah. in, in the face of it all and i love that idea of blackness as as capacious i've said before that blackness absorbs yeah like because it's, i think it's people face people blackness have... for all of us judy was boring hello then judy discovered jumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy <laughs>
1: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. People need to understand that uh, I think we all need to sort of come to terms that that, that blackness is an ontological category that wasn't made by us or for us. And like this is not something like, you know, we, uh, the construct of blackness is inherently and primarily a white supremacist uh, project. And as we inherited it, like, and as we lay claim to it, what do we do with it, right? It's there, it exists. We walk down the street, people note that we're black. We must do something with it. And what I propose is to so radically imbue it with love that it is a category that means almost nothing. There's just so much space to be, to become, to be wrong, to be, you know, like I've had these conversations with people talking about whether or not if you're dating white people, whether or not you can be pro-black or you can be truly pro-black something. I've heard this conversation
0: yes yes and, say more
1: uh, obviously <laughs> there are a lot of people who are dating black white people or a lot of black people who are dating white people who have some really violent notions as to why they're dating black white people like really violent and abhorrent notions going from the level of attractiveness of black women or the and most of it is also very sexist a lot of this sort of like i only date white people tend to be very much i only date white women or something by ways uh, but also in the queer community we have this right so uh, so some of this is a very violent stuff, but inherently, I think, I look, I look at that and I'm like, wait a minute, so we're out here, and we're imagining people who meet other people, and for whatever fate of nature and history, they have come to see another person that is ontologically juxtaposed to them, that is sort of in a differentiated position of power, but also of, 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 of privilege, right? And somehow, these two human beings fell in love, did something extremely risky, actually, you know? With, with their, very, their very soul, their very bodies. they put them at risk to connect, to be seen, to share. And we don't, and we look at that and we're like, yeah, but it's like, no, you're not allowed. <laughs> she
0: don't love herself, yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm like, yeah. are you kidding me? Like, what? There's something when we sort of close like close in on ourselves and we norm these kind of things, there's something really violent about that. And is that really is that really the liberation we seek in? I don't know. I think liberation should be freedom, right? Should be space, should be possibilities, should be potential, fulfilled or otherwise, you know? And then I've
0: honestly never looked at it like that. Like as you've described it, like this risk.
1: Yeah. You know, these two people are coming together and burying themselves naked almost, you know? Like mm. they're, they're saying, see me, to another person. And all we're seeing about that sort of spiritual and, 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 and psychological and even physical risk these people are taking is like their skin color. I think something in there is 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 misshapen when we do that, you know something got lost there and we don't we don't we don't notice that there's a love story going on and that there's a small sort of a collision of two worlds coming in with towards one another with a lot of tenderness and risk and care for one and vulnerability and they might be very private and personal worlds, but it's worlds nonetheless, you know like Let's witness that. Let's be in all of that and be like, what's gonna happen next, you know? What did he text? Okay, what happened? (laughs) And what did it mean? Like, fuck the whole, like, like what, I don't know. Are we very much diverting to what you wanted to discuss today? (laughs) Totally. I'm sorry. So the,
0: we're, we, are, we are so off-piste. But, but it's, <laughs> I'm looking you at my never conversation. Let
1: me free-ball these things. You should be like, no, I love it. People.
0: I'm looking at my conversation outline and I'm like, well, that's out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we, you can bail me back here. We can just go. <laughs> That's fine.
0: I'm like, there is no way I can segue to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: absolutely so this is, fine. Give it to me hard. No. Give it to me without glue. Just go for it.
0: Well, what I actually love about this is in thinking about this project for the European Cultural Foundation about what queer Black solidarity means um, during COVID-19 and how it's shown up for our communities, I've been having these conversations with people and been really drawn by what is coming out of people without prompting, Mm -hmm. as it were. And, And it's made me really think over these conversations, like what the point of this this series is, what this project is. And I think for me, solidarity is very much, for me, it's it's my my role within the ecosystem of change is storytelling Mm -hmm. or as a megaphone for the queer community. So I'm very much using this platform to, to, to amplify the voices, thoughts, feelings of queer black people across Europe who are always called to defend, explain, define their experience within the context of the European project and actually maybe Maybe that's not necessary. Maybe that's not what queer black people are looking for when they when they tune to these conversations. I don't know.
1: I think I think I think personally what I'm trying to uh, also in my literary practice for this year, what I've decided, I had the sabbatical month and a half and I made some decisions. Yeah, okay just, I'm ready for them <laughs> I'm ready for, let's take a moment for that <laughs> the girl is growing okay that's what she's doing She's taking time off. no but one of the things I, I decided was that um, and this goes in line with what I said earlier about uh, how liberating it has been to say like okay I'm not going to write in a way or I'm not going to be invested in whether or not white people understand what I'm saying when I write yeah. and to really focus and I think like you said, Toni Morrison, uh, are people who inspire me so much because by letting go of this need to explain, they were able to go through such deep depths. Like, I mean, like Toni Morrison isn't very easy to read necessarily. It's extremely no. rich and layered, and every time I read her books, I discover new things, because that's what happens if you if you if you let go of this need to explain, to center, to orient, to sort of navigate the various ways in which also whiteness sort of forces itself upon us. Right. Um, what I think what happens is we become so much deeper. And, and, and that's the stories that I'm really interested right now in developing and the kind of projects I want to engage is projects where I, I kind of focus on the things that I think that we need to talk about, or that I would like to engage other black people and other, you know, people of color, the queers with like to really, um, I don't need to, I don't want to advocate for my existence anymore. I'm kind of done with that. You know, I don't want to advocate because I just, I'm so, I feel like oftentimes there are people who are so much better at it than I do. So maybe I'll just focus on the kind of conversations and the kinds of projections and the kind of sort of world build, building through imagination that I think that we need to do in our black and brown communities and specifically black communities very much. Like for example, I'm starting working on a play where I focus in on, um, I call it a bubble of five, and it comes from this sort of like, this COVID bubble that were sort of social bubbles that we're doing here in Belgium. So you can like sort of uh, have five people, close families that you interact with closely, sort of be in your social bubble, which means then you can have them over at your house and you can touch and whatnot, you know? And, but you kind of make agreements that you're just a social bubble of five, right? So that you can have what well, you can be proximate, you can be close to one another, right? so you don't have to socially distance as such with these five people. I'm calling it a bubble of five because it's situated in this, in this uh, family of uh, a three, a mother, black mother, uh, black older sister, and young black brother, right? So like, you know, like these kind of, did I, this kind of projects where I just sort of can really engage and sort of investigate and explore what would, this, what would these three people, from different sort of positionalities in society, like who are very close, who are very dear to each other, what would they talk about, you know? Uh, how, would they, how would they learn from each other? How would they argue? How vicious can you get, you know? <laughs> or how loving would it get? Um, and that's the kind of thing that I now thinking, yeah, that's, that's what inspires me right now, is not necessarily to advocate for my existence with white people, but to invite, you know, other Black people into the conversations that I think, I think sometimes we're also not having or anyways, we're having them and perhaps it's not that visible, it's not centered. It's marginalized, it's invisibilized as well.
0: Well, you're inviting Black people to imagine with you, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Let's see which white mainstream, uh, white uh, theater institution will will want (laughs) to use this. We'll see. (laughs) Because I also want it to be easily accessible, right? I want to make this thing where uh, other black people walking around town, see posters at their local theater or at the mainstream theaters that they are also contributing taxes to. They can see like, oh, this play could be interesting for me and my kids, you know, Uh, instead of like, oh, you know, super difficult, underground, inaccessible things. Um, because not all Black people are super underground. And, uh, you know, some of us just go to work and come back home and turn on the television. And that's how we get, you know, and we go to the, we ask, you know, uh, 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 the local newspaper where the new concerts are taking place, you know, that we're not all connected into this super radical grassroots underground stuff.
0: <laughs> you know, my listeners are gonna roll their eyes because I talk about Kevin Kwasi's The Sovereignty of Quiet all the time. And you've reminded me of this, right? That Quashi uh, argues that blackness is always already about protest, about mm-hmm. activism, about resistance. And actually what happens when we think about blackness in those terms is that we forget that people have these wild interior lives, right? Mm. That, people are just everyday black people are just everyday people as well they aren't always in the front lines of some of some battle for survival but are actually focused on the quotidian on the on the small victories on the on their emotions on their perspective on mm. their imagination yeah and this is a beautiful reminder of that that by looking at the bubble of five in this way you're imagining in a way that so many of us already do right yeah
1: indeed indeed or could do yeah, and I think what what because so much of these spaces and these conversations that I think we are having because they're marginalized and invisibilized and they are therefore extremely intimate and extremely rich. And um, looking back, like when I was in you know, a thing of my childhood in Burundi, and just sort of witnessing my mother and her and her girlfriends and the sisters sort of talking about you know, complicated issues in their lives, whether it's gender, men, religion, politics, you know, business, uh, work, uh, child rearing and whatnot. Like, there was always, I I can just really remember how intimate it was, how unassuming it was, like how vulnerable it could get because these people weren't like, there was no microphone, there was no like, ooh, I need to be like super edgy, it was just women, you know, kicking and like talking about things and like, and also sometimes it could be, it could, I think it had the elements of care in it that are, can be sort of like, you know, it wasn't always comfortable. Like I can remember, Uh, women uh, being, younger women being told that, you know, the things that they were doing with their children or with their husband, that that was not okay. You know, that that was like, you can't do that. Stop doing that. (laughs) Mm. uh, It wasn't always like, Oh, your emotions are valid. You know, like this was community. It was like, and I look at that and I'm like, uh, I really would like to, uh, to gift ourselves this as much more because we, this happens, I think in the very, in the, in, the, in, the, in the spaces that uh, that I would like to invite us to mo- in a more, I don't know, in appreciate the art of it, you know, and the beauty of it, of just how, I don't know if you have that, where you have like black friends and brown friends where you could be cooking some meal and just the memories associated will just, Get you into places and into realizations, and also perhaps some conflicts that, you, that that are just priceless. That are just so amazing.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's one of the one of the big victories or benefits of this year for me has been the connection with my black friends. And those closest to me, you know one of my closest friends and I sometimes just stay on the phone for four hours per night as I cook as as he watches television, not even saying anything, yeah. just like <laughs> being there for each other and and just hearing each other breathe, and that's like such a profound sense of intimacy, right yeah. that I'm just going to share this space with you even though we can't be physically together. yeah one of the things that strikes me about you is that you are an observer, I think right you you really you really see and take in. You know, I'm struck by the stories that you told earlier in our conversation about bearing witness and what you saw and being in spaces where you don't necessarily know but the language, but you're observing, you're watching, you're feeling. And I, that really strikes me, this, this.
1: Yeah, I've always had like a very deep love for just, and curiosity about people. I think when I was younger, that curiosity uh, really came from a place Perfect. It really came from a place that wasn't very necessarily positive. Like I grew up in a rather violent home where a lot of my gender sort of expressions and and how I sort of moved through the world um, was very, uh, uh, how do I say, like kind of, like my parents were very concerned about how so a lot of my family members especially my siblings kind of positioned their identity as men and women uh, and had like put me on the outside as kind of like uh, as long as we're not that like for the boys it was like uh, i'm a man because i'm not like olav you know and for my sister uh, i'm a girl but i am not as feminine as olav right so there was this sort of and and policing my gender expression and my gender identity came with a lot of physical violence and all that. so i think i grew up wanting uh, to observe and understand what were the cues and the sort of in the, in the in the family and in the larger social structure to understand when i was safe and when i wasn't and so on. so i think that that's where and also i just didn't under, i think i didn't understand why i was doing it all wrong why I kept on being told, yeah, but that's not what boys do. Like, I was like, what do they do? You know, (laughs) how does this work? I don't know. I don't understand. (laughs) And so, um, and I felt like, I think from, from an early age on, I just felt like I cannot understand people. I just, I'm not able to understand what makes them violent, what makes them thick, why is what I'm doing wrong? Why are they doing what they're doing? And how can I emulate? So from that place, um of trying to keep safe i think i've developed a a part of me that i really love now which uh indeed is observant and and curious and and uh and uh and uh, inquisitive as well like i i take a lot of joy out of just that attitude that i have towards people and groups and so on because I really, I think people are really amazing, actually. If you really, yes, I was put in a place where I had to observe and it wasn't, it was kind of violent. But from what I've learned and, and seen and witnessed from that position, I'm, that's, I think maybe that's also why I write, to just kind of give people back what I saw, what I've seen, right? To kind of um, perhaps present a little bit of that of that beauty that I see in them and just give it back to them as a way to say, you know, I witnessed you and it was, it was interesting. It was beautiful. It was courageous. It was inspiring. It was cowardly, but it's also fine. You know? <laughs> I understand, I don't know. Is that, yeah. So I think that that's where, uh, yeah, that's how I think my, my writing is also kind of, comes from.
0: Oh my god, we're almost out of time.
1: <clears throat> are we? Oh my god, I feel like yeah. we're just started. I feel like when is it gonna start? <laughs> like, when are we gonna start oh. the real interview?
0: <laughs> no, it's been amazing. Um, I've got two questions for you. The first is what does solidarity mean to you? How do you think it how do you think it shows up?
1: Uh I did a talk, I did a keynote the other day about care. And uh, I think care is a very important and constitutive part of solidarity, right? There is this, it, it, there is this sort of this, this provision of what people need to, you know, be well, to be safe, to thrive, to, to be protected, right? I think that's what care is, is to make sure that people are provided, that you provide the things that people need, right? To exist, to thrive, to love, to live to be healthy and whatnot. I think solidarity is when it comes from what you have, right? from uh, the kind of position you have acquired or been gifted from the kind of privileges that you have acquired of, well, I don't think you acquire privileges, but you, you, that you have access to, or that you have been gifted by these systems and, of oppression that are you know, differentially like creating privileges and oppression for some and others. And so in that sense, I think solidarity is, is material, definitely material. Uh, but it's also, it costs something to the, to, the, to the one that gives. Like there is no, I don't think solidarity is solidarity if it costs you nothing. Um, I, at most, it might be aspirational if it costs you nothing. If, you don't, if you're not giving up something in return for, well, not in return, but if you're not just giving up something, <laughs> then it's at most aspirational. But true solidarity means you hand in something, you lose something, it costs you something and but I think um like care, I think, and love, um I think those three things, solidarity, care, love are are some of the most uh most I think most people that I've ever met in my life, if you pay close attention, at least when I pay close attention, I hear them talk about how they've been there for this friend, been there for that friend, and how if that friend would want something, they would be willing. That's something which in our heart of hearts is how we build this sense of we're a good person. Is not only what we've done for the people we care about, the things we've lost, what it has cost us to be a friend, to be a lover, to be a, a colleague, but what we would be willing to give, right? Like people might do the the most horrible things, but be like, but I'm a good friend because I was there when that friend was there, right?
0: Mm, mm, mm.
1: And so care, solidarity, and love, I think that's uh, the deepest part of ourselves. It's the deepest part, it's the ones, it's where we, uh, I think that when we're about to die, it gives us greater comfort to know we were there for our friends, than whether or not we did sky jumping, or whether we had all that money, or whether we had more sense. I think, essentially, at the end of the day, um, so I think solidarity is maybe also the key to, to practice who we want to be, you know, mm. and the deepest self that we want to be. I've met neoliberal, you know, libertarians, even fascists who do hold a precious, this idea that they would give, that they would care, that they would be there for the people that they love and they care for. And I think solidarity is maybe that, is if you focus, if we would just focus on that, um, we would be, um, be more of who we want to be, beyond all the great analyses and all the great, You know, edgy, radical things, whether or not you wear, you dye your hair green to express, you know, your rejection of the binary or whatnot. I mean, it's all great. Um, Go for it. But if we focus maybe on solidarity and care and love, we would be that much more effective. In being love, who we want
0: to be. Mm, and I love this this description of solidarity in line with Karen Love as being tough stuff, you know. Um, mm. to quote Tony Morrison again, love is divine and difficult always.
1: Yeah. It ain't easy. It ain't no. it will cost you something. If you're comfortable, you're not doing solidarity. <laughs> you're doing something else, but it's not solidarity.
0: <laughs> to close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for?
1: uh for myself
0: it's purposely broad
1: uh, <laughs> what do i hope for uh, i i really hope for despair i think we need more despair in our lives i think that we need to be i'm hoping that we come to a more of us uh come to just abandon this This um. I embrace the fact that it it is bad, it is getting worse, and very maybe any of those things that we're doing right now, any of those things that we think we should be doing might not fix it. And embrace that fully and go from a place that, uh, you know the worst thing that could happen is already happening, whether it is for you or for another, or will happen. And perhaps there is in that, in that despair, perhaps there is something much more radical lurking behind. So a promise much more um, subversive. That I think, I don't know the words to yet. I don't really, I don't have, I'm working with it. I don't really know exactly how to, but I, I feel like, if we really would fully integrate despair into our activism, into our work, into our relations at the moment, uh, we might be the wiser for it. We might be the braver for it. You know?
0: This has been a remarkable and energizing conversation. I'm really Uh so grateful to (laughs) you. Thank you. Yeah, it's really wonderful. You're so
1: kind.
0: (laughs) But also I got goosebumps. I was like, oh my God. I have like really visceral reactions to things. I think I told you.
1: Yeah. um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was amazing. Thank you.
1: Thank you for sharing this space with me and really good luck and continue having these conversations in or outside of this project, which you will obviously, but uh, it's been just also just, you know, getting to know you, talking to you, but also looking at what you're doing. It's been like, I feel like I've, I've met, and I'm grateful for it, for I've met like a real giant of thought and doing and kindness and feelings. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy that you are in people's lives. I'm very happy for them.
0: Olava Duwanja is an artist, author, legal scholar, and activist. You'll find links to her work in the show notes. Thank you to our newest funding partner, MyGWork, the LGBT business community. MyGWork is a global recruitment and networking hub for LGBT professionals, graduates, allies, and organizations to promote diversity and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. And as the landscape of work changes beneath our feet, MyGWork's focus on ensuring LGBT voices and experiences are heard is as important as ever. Find out more at mygwork.com. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The Tenth, and Schools Out. And thank you to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, ratings, shares, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer Black, Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City, for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats, Ashe.